him. Pull up a stool. And let me pour you a drink. Let's talk a little noir at the bar. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Noir at the Bar, where you get to hear some of your favorite authors reading from their books and short stories. Now, this season, our guest readers are authors that are going to be attending the Left Coast Crime in Seattle, April 11th to 14th. So not only do you get to hear them on the show here, you can go visit them, meet them, and maybe get a book signed. John, what's going on on your end of the bar? Gary Phillips and I are down here at the end of the bar trying to get the bartender's attention for a drink. Um, we're very thirsty. Uh, but in the meantime, Gary is going to read from his short story collection, The Unvarnished. And, Gary, I believe you're reading uh, Demon of the Track. Is that correct? Yes, I'm going to read the opening uh, uh, pages to uh, Demon of the Track, John. Demon of the Track. Adam Deacon Coles tapped the brakes and swung his 41 Willis Coupe to the right, his high beams illuminating the edge and the drop-off. The green Mercury with a supercharger scoop sticking out of the hood brushed against the left side of his car. He didn't care about the body. It was full of dents and the fenders and... Passenger door were mismatched colors obtained from the salvage yard. But he didn't want the Merc knocking him over the edge of the rise as he took the turn. The mercury was on the inside of the curve, plumes of dirt and loose rocks clouding behind both cars as they sped, their rear ends bumping once, twice together, then apart again. Each car had big bore engines in them that were not stock. Their mechanic drivers had cut and welded and pounded to fit them into their respective vehicles. The roar of those engines filled the cabs of each car as their owners sought dominance. The race crowd hooped and hollered and made other joyous noises down where the race started and would end. Behind the gathered rose a wide ramp of the Santa Monica Freeway under construction, a mass of concrete and rebar sticking out of the end as if the ramp had been sawed off by a storm giant, for this was as far as the work had taken the builders. The goal was to construct a byway connecting downtown to the coast. In the process, the homes of working-class black folk in what was called the Pico District, people who'd come west in the 30s and 40s to work the then boom of oil fields and later aircraft, had been snatched up by eminent domain. Those same homes were rented back to them before they were kicked out and the houses torn down to make way for rivers of freeway cement. The race took place primarily on a snake of land that had been bulldozed to gradually rise nearly a quarter mile up, then took a whip turn around to descend into a flattened, cleared area that once housed a park and an apartment complex. Now, there were stands of unfinished pylons and piles of concrete and wood and glass debris from demolished houses to maneuver around. Then another turn through a partially fenced-in area where several heavy-duty trucks and tractors and the crowd were gathered. Back to the rise of land again. To add to the difficulty, it was now dusk and the natural light fading, so a driver's vision and reflexes had to be sharp. The improvised racetrack was a rough oval. The racers had to drive around ten times. This was the eighth lap. They came out of the turn, the Merc taking the lead. Downhill, the cars plowed, the Willis running over a chunk of concrete, which Cole's praise didn't blow out his tire. Reaching the flattened area, he swerved around a pylon, the Merc now on his right flank. The other car zigged and zagged between two interspersed pylons and veered back toward Coles' car. Traveling at more than 90 miles an hour, both were honing in on another pylon, dead center, piled concrete on either side 
of the two vehicles. Coles went left, and the other car gobbled distance opposite. But the worst hit the sizable rut in the earth and would have snapped the front axle in half given the speed they were traveling. Cole smiled ruefully. Fortunately, he installed hydraulics taken from a junk World War II airplane wing in the front leaf springs connected to the straight axle. Those helped absorb the impact. Good thing he'd run into a man he knew, Ron Aguirre, at a car show about a year ago, and Aguirre had shown him the hydraulics he installed on a custom car he called a lowrider. At the flick of a toggle switch, he could lift and lower the car's shell. Now, as he reached the other turn, Coles pressed down again on the accelerator and pulled up the handbrake in a maneuver he'd been practicing. He fishtailed through the turn, forcing the Merc to swing wider to avoid his car. In this way, he gained the lead as he straightened out. They whooshed past the crowd. Coles kept in front, but the Mercury was tight on his tail. As they got near the top again of the quarter-mile dirt rise, the Merc attempted to gain an advantage by powering through the turn, but the driver miscalculated when to apply the gas, and just as he was about to complete the turn, momentum caused the rear end to lose purchase, and the car skidded over the side of the dirt ramp. It rolled once, twice, and landed upright down below. Coles completed the race, then ran from his car once he turned off to see about his opponent. Someone had already gotten the other driver free from his wrecked vehicle. Fortunately, both cars had roll bars installed in the interior. You okay, Sack? Coles asked William Sakamoto. The other driver's face was cut and bruised. Looks like I live, Deke. He took a step up, but his knee buckled. Coles put a hand under his arm. Okay, maybe I'll sit down a minute, he grinned. Bystanders laughed and clapped the two on their backs. Somebody had a folding beach chair and set it up for Sakamoto to sit. A few kerosene camping lanterns had been brought, and those were lit against the oncoming night. Some of the people left and others milled about, talking about the race or examining the mercury while drinking beers. The smell of marijuana drifted about, and one beatnik sat on the crinkled fender of the mercury, wailing on his bongos. Good race, Deke, said a blonde in striped pants and a sweater top. She handed him a can of hams. You hear the coolest, Dory. Ain't I, she said, wandering away. A tall man in a snap bin hat and a Hawaiian shirt stepped over to Coles. The night was warm. Mind if I have a word with you, Mr. Coles? They were near the Willis, and Coles leaned against the driver's door. What can I do for you? Coles was in rolled-up sleeves, tan chinos, and worn heavy work boots. His hair was close-cropped, and a scar ran part of the length of his jawline. My name is Fred Warrens. He was in his late 40s, brown hair long the nape of his neck and with hazel eyes. He had a trim mustache and knobby knuckles. Cole showed interest. You manage the Sentinel Speedway, don't you? Yes, sir. What are going to do for you, Mr. Warrens? I want you to race at our track. Cole chuckled harshly. What? You're going to have bring a Negro to the races night? He chuckled some more. Uncomfortable, Warrens frowned. That's a crude way of putting it, Mr. Coles, but would, we would like to offer you a featured spot. I know something of your record. Fighter pilot in Korea, flying Mustangs, and then the F-80 jets. Over 75 missions and 10 confirmed kills in air combat. The deacon of the air, they called you. Yeah, well, he said dismissively. You read that old article on me and Ebony, so I guess that makes you an all right sort of guy, huh? But wasn't it an article that since the war you've been building and racing hot rods and pickup contests all over town? A lot of people, black and white, talk you up. Well, yeah, it still means me and mine is unwelcome at your all at you all precious racetracks all over town. Warren's looked off at a few people dancing and snapping their finger as the bongo man beat out a frenzied rhythm. He looked back at Coles. Let me put my cards on the table, okay? Please do. It's no secret that Inglewood is changing, and, well, we think we need to change the times, too. 
Citadel Speedway was on a hill overlooking Citronella Avenue in Inglewood. Uh-huh. Coles folded his arms. You mean them color folk who've been buying homes near the plant since after the big one has also meant they go to the races and have noticed a lack of shade down on the track. Looking past Warren's shoulder, Coles couldn't help but notice a Mexican-American woman he hadn't seen around before. She was dark-haired and copper-hued, wearing black jeans and a black top, lantern-like glinting off gold hoop earrings. She was something. She glanced his way and smiled as a man in a T-shirt offered her a toke on the tea, the marijuana. The woman declined. Think what chapter of the NAACP is threatened the boycott campaign, Warren said. We've been very active when it comes to jobs, promotion at North American Aviation. Cole smiled amusedly. Didn't you tell him you had a couple of black fellows working at the track already, Mr. Warrens? Both of them janitors, I believe now. Ain't that so? Warren spread his hands. As I said, we want to do things differently. Then bring some colors onto the pit crews, Coles countered. We can't demand that of a racer and his sponsors. That's their decisions to make. But you want me to shuck and jive at some kind of hopped-up show, ain't, it? Ain't, ain't that right? Make sure the cameras are there on me after the race and I got this big shit-eating grin on my mug thanking you and the Lord for the special, special day. Well, maybe take a knee and break in the mammy while I'm at it. You're looking at this all wrong, Mr. Coles. Sorry you wasted your time, Mr. Warrens. He took a pull. Warrens lingered, taking in a deep breath and letting it out slow. He adjusted his hat and left. Cole shook his head and finished his beer. Nearby was a mound of junk, and walking toward it, he tossed his can onto the pile. Turning, he encountered the woman in black. You're a skilled man, she said. Her accent was heavy, but her words were clear, like they were being tattooed on his spine. Maybe it's equal parts stupid sometimes, he countered, careful not to get lost in those depthless eyes of hers. But winning is good for business. Get some engines and cars so word gets around when you come in first. And coming in first matters to you? Better than getting kicked in the teeth. Yeah, I suppose that is so. He made a sound. I wasn't being that serious. I see. You're new around these parts. I'm Yamar, Yamar Montez. She put out her hand. There was a large jade and stone ring on her finger. They shook. Good to meet you. The pleasure's all mine, Deacon Coles. Those eyes. Deke, a voice called out. He turned to see an inebriated Sakamoto holding out a beer to him. Here you go, Daddy Yo. Uh, yeah, cool, Sack, but I was just talking to Yamar here, hoping he'd get the hint and blow. Who? She'd slipped away, and Coles couldn't spot her beyond the small circles of light and lanterns allowed. The lanterns allowed. Never mind, he sighed, taking the beer. His friend grinned, bobbing his head to the bongo beat. Thanks, Gary. That was amazing. Thank you. This time I got Gerald Elas, and uh, he's got a new book coming out in May called Old Murder on Vacation. So welcome, Gerald, and tell us about what you're going to read. Well, great to be back. Murder on Vacation is a baker's dozen collection of short crime fiction. Uh, each story features the protagonist, Maury Gross, who is an NYPD retired police chief. And he and his wife, Bobby, are always trying to go on vacation uh, to some of the big holiday vacation spots around the country, but it seems... Wherever he goes, there is a crime that's committed that the local law enforcement can't solve. So they call upon him because he is such an expert and he is such a nice guy that uh, he can't resist. It's a very lighthearted collection. You know, going out on a limb, you know, he's a, a cop that has no dark backstory. Uh, he's not alcoholic. He doesn't have Alzheimer's. He's not 
dysfunctional, he has a great family, and is highly respected. So in that regard, he's quite a unique character for detectives. Yeah, other than the last part, it sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, go for it. Let's see. Let's, I'm anxious to hear it. Thanks. I'm going to be reading the beginning of a story called Getting Ahead. It's for you, dear, the wife said, and then in a whisper, she sounds very nice. She handed me the phone. Hello, I said. Agent Michaela Redmond, sir, Department of Homeland Security. We've got a hostage situation. Good luck to you, I said. We need to talk to you about it. You wrote the book on hostage negotiations. We can use your help. Young lady, it's a beautiful summer morning. My wife and I are standing in front of Old Faithful in Yellowstone National Park with a professional photographer. It's for our annual holiday greeting card and it's going to erupt any minute now. I can't... I understand, sir. I'm here at Yellowstone, too. What a lovely coincidence. Make sure you keep your distance from the Grizzlies. The secretary of DHS asked me to find you. I'm observing you as we speak. But, as you said, you've already got my book on hostage negotiations. What do you need me for? This one's not in your book. It's different. Different. How so? The hostage is... Ahead. Hold on a minute. I put the phone down. Take our picture, I said to the photographer. Now. But it isn't erupting yet, the wife said. You know how to Photoshop? I asked the photographer. Am I a professional or what? Good. Take the picture. I am smiling. Great. Thank you. Okay, young lady. What's the story? Are you familiar with the name Clark Harlan Spurgis? Of course I've heard of Clark Harlan Spurgis. Everyone in law enforcement had. He'd been a Galwacko fanatic leader of the violent, ultra-nationalist, white power group, the shadowy Aryan Universalist Network. Yes, I'm familiar with that name. He was killed, what, seven or eight years ago, when one of his own followers shot him with a bow and arrow. That's right. Except Spurgis didn't totally die. Totally die? Is there something in between? A partial die? Sort of. Spit it out, agent. Spurgis was worried that upon his death, whether he died of natural causes or was killed, the movement he started would fall apart without his leadership. To make a long story short, he had instructed his closest followers to have his head surgically removed and frozen, like what was done with Ted Williams. Oh, cryopreservation. That's exactly it, sir. Cryopreservation. Their hope is that someday in the future, when medical science has progressed, the head can be attached to a new body and be revived. In the meantime, since in a way he's still alive, his organization has stayed pretty much intact. They continue to worship him like he's a god or something. Huh, waiting for the resurrection. We try to keep religion out of this. Of course. It's all very interesting, but... What does this have to do with the hostage situation? Spurgis's head had been frozen in a secret, guarded Aryan Universalist Network fortress somewhere in the Sawtooth Mountains here in Wyoming. But now someone's stolen it and is holding it for ransom. The AUN has called us to help get the head back. They called DHS? That's chutzpah if I've ever heard it. But if the fortress was secret and guarded, how did Spurgis's head manage to get itself stolen? For some reason, I was having a hard time taking this very seriously. There was a suspicious power outage at their facility, threatening the specific temperature controls 
that maintained the head's viability. The AUN had been prepared for such an eventuality with a specially accessorized van that would take it to another secure location. But on the way, the van was hijacked. It was a precisely planned and executed kidnapping, sir. Why do you say the power outage was suspicious? No one else in the region reported an interruption in service. The AUN facility was clearly the target. Who are the hijackers? They claim to represent an organization called the Center. Never heard of them. We hadn't either. Were the drivers killed? They were released unharmed, sir. How much money did the headnappers want? That's the problem, sir. They don't want money. Their demand to the AUN is, if they don't disband and turn over all their weapons to the government by midnight, they'll defrost the head. Sounds like a win-win to me, I said. We try to keep politics out of this, sir. The problem is AUN issued a counter-threat. Not your typical hostage negotiating tactic, but go ahead, tell me their counter-threat. If Sturgis's head is not returned fully frozen and viable, AUN said they will commence an armed uprising in every state capital with the goal of overturning our form of government. Ah! Sorry if I've upset you, sir. It's not that. Old Faithful just erupted. I'm soaking wet. Sorry, sir. Never mind. What is it you want me to do? We want you to take the lead in the negotiations, sir. Are you kidding? Look, first of all, I'm retired. Second, I'm on vacation. Third, and this is the clincher, as NYPD police chief, I had to deal with terrorism on a daily basis, and the AUN was the worst of the worst. Their racist hate speech and anti-American manifestos were just on this side of First Amendment protection. But the meat of their organization, the location of their cells, their contacts, their weaponry, their actual game plans, were so deeply encrypted that we couldn't pin anything on them. The subway bombings, the cop shootings, the churches, synagogue torches, they're died-in-the-world domestic terrorists. And now you're asking me to go play nice with them? and get their leaders' head back so they can continue to be a threat to civilization? Yes, sir, because there's no option. In this situation, better to have them threatening violence than committing it. That's what we thought. That got my attention, and she had a point. Well, Agent Redmond, considering the possible repercussions of this predicament, if I were to say yes to doing this, I'd need to be certain that Homeland Security has my back before I meet with these people. Done that, sir. We're all ready. Well, fantastic. We look forward to seeing you at the, uh, at the event, too. Left Coast Grind. See you there. And now down to Joe. He's Again, he's in the center of another crowd. I don't know how he gets so many people around him. Because I am with uh, James Twelfth, who's been nominated or won about every award that's out there for his crime writing. And he's going to be reading from Face of Greed. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Uh, it's nice to be nice to be back here again. Yeah, I'll be reading from Face of Greed. It's the uh, first novel in a new series uh, featuring Detective Emily Hunter. And uh, I'm just going to read a, a, a little taste from the first chapter to kind of give you a little bit of what Emily's about and what she's facing and what she's up against, uh, even before the investigation really starts. So we'll we'll start with her story here. Chapter one. Emily Hunter learned to be wary of open doorways when she rolled up to a call. In the five years of her assignment at the Detective Bureau of the Sacramento Police Department, 
She knew bad things often lurked in the dark behind partially open doors. When it was the front door of your own home, at seven in the evening, the anxiety bit deep. She crept close, listening for anything or anyone who didn't belong. Her hand tapped the grip on the glock on her hip as she climbed the stairs. The lights were on. The television blared an infomercial for a product promising the end of dry skin. Mom? Emily had moved her mother in with her four months ago after the 70-year-old retired teacher suffered a series of memory lapses and household accidents. The advancing scourge of dementia at Connie Hunter was unable to live a safe, independent life in her own home. Mom, are you there? Sheila. Emily called out for the caregiver she'd hired to stay with her mother while Emily worked long hours as a detective. When no response came from within, Emily's subconscious went to a very dark place. She'd investigated a series of home invasions in the city where gangbangers targeted the homes of elderly people to terrorize and loot money and prescription drugs from the weak and the powerless. The front door hadn't been kicked in. There was no sign of a forced entry. Emily entered and scanned the living room. Except for the missing mother and caregiver, the home appeared normal. She turned off the television set and heard the kitchen faucet running. A quick look into her remodeled kitchen found the water running over a sink full of dishes, but no one there. She shut the water off and spotted, spotted Connie's GPS-enabled pendant on the kitchen counter. She held the tracker in her hand. Then Emily heard the front door slam, followed by the metallic click of the deadbolt. She heard the voices before stepping into the living room. Sheila had draped a comforter from the sofa over Connie's frail shoulders. Her mother was wearing a light house coat and a pair of fuzzy pink slippers. She shivered as Sheila rubbed her arms, warming her. What happened? Where were you? Emily asked. I found her wandering down the street near the park, Sheila said. Connie looked small and fragile in the house coat, one too thin for the cold spring air. Mom, what were you thinking? It was time to go, Connie said with a shiver in her voice. Go? Go where? Home. Emily bit her lip. It wasn't the first time her mother mentioned going home or the need to do something somewhere else. Sundowner syndrome, the doctors called it. A little gift that came with dementia, confusion, a sudden surge of anxiety, and a feeling that she was lost. And in a way, she was. Mom, this is home now, Emily said. I swear I turned her back, my back on her for a second now while I was finishing up the dinner dishes and she slipped out. She hasn't pulled that one before. What happened? She seemed a little more confused than usual, but I couldn't tell me why. I was, she was watching her shows, and then she just walked out. I can't be responsible for her wandering off. You might want to think about moving her into a facility. I'm not putting Mom in a home. Emily draped the GPS locket around her mother's neck. Why weren't you wearing this? It's not mine. Yes, it is. Remember, we talked about it. Connie didn't respond, but the look behind her eyes was one of confusion and uncertainty. Emily's work cell phone vibrated in her pocket. Calls after 7 in the evening weren't, for, weren't telemarketers who should be banished to a leper colony. These nighttime calls invariably meant someone suffered a beating, a rape, another murder in a city with no shortage of victims. In earlier years, she wondered if she didn't answer the call, if she let it ring until it stopped, would the crime still occur? Could she prevent another victim from ending up in some desolate field? A few hundred calls later, her naive hope evaporated, and she came to terms with the fact that the flow of victims in the city was never-ending. She stabbed the answer button. Hunter here. Evening, detective. Hold for the watch commander, a woman's voice instructed. While Emily, Emily waited, she plotted to the office in the rear of her home and removed a fresh notebook out of the bottom drawer. She wrote on the first line of the first page, 1935 hours received a call from the watch commander. Hey, Emily, Lieutenant Ford here. Initial report is a home invasion gone bad. One victim dead and one injured. Another one? 
Where are we talking about? The location is, and we heard rustling paper in the background. Here it is. It's 1357 40, 43rd Street. That's a nice neighborhood. It used to be, anyway. I'll call Medina and get there as soon as I can, Emily responded. I called him first. His name was up on the rotation. Javier said he'd meet you on scene, Emily. And there's something else you need to know. Emily fell silent. The chief is already there. He's taking a personal interest in this one. Oh, sweet Jesus, that's never a good sign. Emily tossed the notebook on the desk. Yeah, I mean, this is a high-profile case, so watch your back. I appreciate the heads up. I'll be there as soon as I tie up something. She disconnected the call and tried to figure out how she could work the case remotely. Maybe her partner, Javier, could hold up his phone and live stream the crime scene. Who is she kidding? Sheila? Emily found her mother and Sheila parked in the living room watching a television show that was popular in the 60s. Connie had calmed and her face was relaxed. I can stay, Sheila said. I overheard the call. I think she's calm now. It won't be long until she's off to bed. I'll keep an eye on her. Thank you. Call me if there's any problem. Please make her wear that GPS pendant. I'll figure something out. As Emily changed into her fresh blouse, the thought of the chief wandering the crime scene kept surfacing. What drew the top cop out to a crime scene after dark wasn't going to bode well for the assigned detectives. Once in her dark blue Ford Crown Victoria, Emily let the defroster attack the rapidly forming condensation on the windshield. Sections of the window cleared and showcased the obnoxious blue Christmas lights her neighbor clung onto four months after the holiday season. They blinked on and off all at once, stabbing a constant strobe into the detective's bedroom window, another flimsy excuse for her insomnia. As the car warmed up, Emily got out and scraped a thin film of ice from the driver's window with the side of her hand. She stole a glance down the quiet street, gathered her shoulder-length dark hair in a ponytail, and stepped back into the shadows away from the car. She followed the fence line to the neighbor's glowing, stale, yuletide shrine. Emily pulled the seventh and tenth small bulbs from their socket and partially rethreaded the maddening electrical orbs back into the strand. The entire string blacked out, and she basked in the electric silence without the hellish current knifing into the night. Then she returned to the car, backed out of the driveway, and wondered where her, when her lazy-ass neighbor would recognize he had become the victim of a drive-by bulbing. Emily made a right on J Street and sped to 46th, where the glow from the blinking red, blue, and yellow lights of emergency vehicles exacted some sort of revenge for his neighbor's display. Residents of this upscale enclave didn't take the car, park their Benz, Jag, or Maserati on the street. Their precious status symbols were locked away in garages or behind walled courtyards. She recognized the silver crown in front of her as the mayor's car and she crept forward until her bumper came within an inch of the mayor's sedan, effectively boxing the politician's ride again against the fire vehicle with a bright red and white sign warning, keep back 100 feet. The chief and the mayor at the crime scene, frickin' awesome. And that's where I'll leave it. That's great. Well, it shines in this, in this book. Oh, thank I, I you. I think everybody should grab it to, to, to learn and to, and to read and be entertained by it. It's, it's fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been a production of the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our show, guests, or hosts, go to our website at houseofmysteryradio.com.